Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. Each month, Chess Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peter Mazzone highlights key articles from the current issue of the journal to help clinicians stay informed about new research in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce this month's episode, here is Dr. Peter Mazzone. Thank you for tuning in to the Editor's Highlight podcast for the February issue of the journal Chest. Over the next 10 minutes or so, I will highlight some of the content in this month's issue to help guide your reading. Our journal editorial board is divided into content areas, and we organize our publication within each of these content areas. I'll touch base on each content area in my overview. In our asthma section this month, Kavanaugh and colleagues aimed to assess the real-world effectiveness of benralizumab as treatment for severe eosinophilic asthma. They evaluated 130 patients treated at their specialist center and found a substantial reduction in their annualized exacerbation rate in median prednisolone dose, as well as clinically significant improvements in quality of life in FEV1. Those with a strongly eosinophilic phenotype and less severe disease were more likely to respond to treatment. A How I Do It article discussing an approach to eosinophilia presenting with pulmonary symptoms rounds out this section. In our chest infection section this month, Tan and colleagues report a systematic review and meta-analysis to identify the global point estimate of mortality and risk factors for mortality in those with severe COVID-19 admitted to intensive care units. The 45 studies in over 16,000 patients from 17 countries that were identified combined to show 76% had ARDS, the need for substantial organ support was prevalent, prolonged ICU and hospital stays were the norm, and an in-hospital mortality was around 28%. A second original research article in this section explores the association between the minimal inhibitory concentration of clofazamine and treatment outcome of non-tuberculous mycobacterial pulmonary disease. The MICs varied widely with sputum culture conversions associated with lower MIC values. Please also take a look at a special feature article describing a U.S. FDA workshop report on the development of drugs for non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. In our COPD section this month, Ward and colleagues compared the cardiopulmonary and metabolic responses during eccentric cycling to those achieved during concentric cycling in 13 individuals with moderate to severe COPD as well as nine age-matched controls. They found lower cardiopulmonary, blood, and muscle lactate responses during eccentric cycling. The well-tolerated with lower ventilatory cost, these results suggest that training based on eccentric cycling is unlikely to stimulate cardiopulmonary and metabolic responses to the same extent as concentric cycling. I encourage you to look at two other original research articles in this section. In the first, quantitative CT imaging helped to identify three clusters of participants in the COPD gene study. Airway gene expression signatures differed between the three imaging-based groups. Separately, in a scoping review, 
The second article identified several development, content, context, and quality gaps in COPD guidelines from low- and middle-income countries that could hamper their effective implementation. Our critical care section this month includes four original research articles. Two evaluated the impact of early care strategies. In the first, the relative impact of fluid composition during early resuscitation in the emergency department on sepsis outcomes was assessed. In this secondary analysis of the SMART trial, which compared balanced crystalloids to saline resuscitation in critically ill adults, Jackson and colleagues report a greater effect of balanced crystalloid use on mortality when used both in the emergency department and in the ICU. In the second, Fernando and colleagues assessed the impact on hospital mortality of using lung protective ventilation in those requiring mechanical ventilation in the emergency department. They found lower hospital mortality, decreased incidence of ARDS, lower hospital length of stay, and decreased total costs when lung protective ventilation was used. The final two articles published in this section include a multi-center retrospective study of the safety and effectiveness of angiotensin II in vasodilatory shock and a survey of 2,700 interdisciplinary healthcare providers from 77 countries that assesses the impact of regional differences and perceptions of ICU resources on the well-being of healthcare providers caring for critically ill COVID-19 patients. I encourage you to look at this insightful work. In addition, a special feature article describing the functionality of the U.S. strategic national stockpile ventilators obtained as an emergency purchase appears in this section. Our diffuse lung disease section this month has two interesting research articles. Sin and colleagues assessed whether pulmonary vascular volumes quantified on CT scans were associated with interstitial lung abnormalities in a community-based cohort of over 2,300 participants of the Framingham Heart Study. They found that more severe vascular pruning on CT was associated with greater odds of interstitial lung abnormalities, progression of those abnormalities, and restriction on spirometry, suggesting that vascular pruning may be an early indicator of pulmonary vasculopathy with interstitial lung disease. In the second article, Suisa and colleagues assess whether the use of proton pump inhibitors in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis are associated with a reduction in all-cause in respiratory-related mortality as well as respiratory-related hospitalizations. A prevalent new user cohort design was used to match 1,852 PPI users with 1,852 non-users using time-conditional propensity scores. Counter to other studies, PPI use was not associated with lower mortality or the incidence of hospitalization. I also encourage you to read a consensus statement about the evaluation and management of pulmonary disease in Sjogren syndrome that completes this section. In our education and clinical practice section this month, Sharp and colleagues assess the burden of burnout and depressive symptoms among fellows training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Through a cross-sectional electronic survey of fellows in the U.S., 
formal measures of burnout and depression were assessed and correlated with fellow, program, and institutional characteristics. 32% of respondents met criteria for burnout and 41% for depression. A coverage system and access to mental health services were associated with lower odds of burnout, while financial concerns, working more than 70 hours per week, and electronic health record documentation were associated with higher odds of burnout, depression, or both. Three other articles in this section are worthy of your time. The first assesses the 18-month outcomes of survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who awaken in the first two weeks after arrest. The second addressed how to quantify changes in the components of ventilatory pump dynamics during childhood via thoracic quantitative dynamic magnetic resonance imaging. And the third evaluated whether a smartphone sensor with app for the measurement of clinical pulse oximetry met FDA requirements and compared favorably to hospital reference devices. Special features in this section include an article on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on education and another discussing the link between dyspnea in mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS and post-traumatic stress disorder. In our pulmonary and cardiovascular section, you will find interesting work by Zetter and colleagues assessing whether pulmonary resistance at peak exercise is a predictor of mortality and systemic sclerosis. This question was assessed in a retrospective cohort of 80 individuals with a resting mean pulmonary artery pressure less than 25 millimeters mercury who had symptom-limited exercise right heart catheterization performed. Pulmonary vascular and total pulmonary resistance at peak exercise were predictors of age-adjusted long-term mortality in this cohort. Other research in this section includes a project that aimed to quantify the risk for hospital-related venous thromboembolism among patients with acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease, and one that assessed how hypoxia affects constant work rate exercise test time in pulmonary hypertension patients. Finally, a How I Do It review describing how to perform a fluid challenge test for the diagnosis of occult heart failure completes this section. The chest sleep medicine section this month includes a study designed to assess whether obstructive and central sleep apnea are risk factors for major pulmonary complications after cardiac surgery. In this sub-analysis of an ongoing prospective observational study, those with sleep-disordered breathing, particularly central sleep apnea, were more likely to have a major pulmonary complication. A second study in this section a retrospective observational study compared the success of positive airway pressure titration and compliance with therapy between infants and school-age children with obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. They found that PAP therapy was both highly effective at treating obstructive sleep apnea and was well-tolerated in infants. Completing this section is a chest review discussing the spectrum of sleep disorders in Parkinson's disease. Our thoracic oncology content area includes a prospective, multi-center pilot and feasibility study that aimed to determine the safety and feasibility of robotic-assisted bronchoscopy in patients with peripheral pulmonary lesions. 
The study reported 96% success at localizing the lesion and a 4% pneumothorax rate. In addition, three studies related to lung cancer screening appear this month. The first used a geospatial approach to determine that 18% of counties in the U.S. and 6% of potentially eligible individuals do not have access to screening facilities. The second identified variability in the reliability of pack year information and routine practice and quantified the impact of random error in pack year assessment on misclassifying those who are screen eligible. The third assessed the survival of individuals with screen detected stage one lung cancer in the National Lung Screening Trial. 10-year survival in the CT arm was 73%, higher than those identified in the chest X-ray arm or in regular practice. Smaller tumor size and surgical treatment were associated with an increased likelihood of survival. Finally, I encourage you to take a look at a piece published in the Vantage section of our Humanities and Chest Medicine series this month titled, Potential for State Restrictions to Impact Critical Care of pregnant patients with COVID-19. Our case series publications for the month provide novel and educational cases that test your clinical acumen. I hope you enjoy reading some of the high quality content available in this month's issue of CHEST. I'm grateful to the authors of this work, the reviewers who volunteered their time to improve the quality of these submissions, and to our editorial board for guiding everything that we do. Until next month, I hope you enjoy the February issue. Thanks for listening to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights podcast. You can find the articles mentioned in this podcast and more on chestjournal.org. And if you're looking for more context and commentary on articles in the current issue, please check out the original Chess Journal podcast, which features in-depth discussions with the authors themselves. We'll be back again with more Editor's Highlights next month.